this is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Simeons. Welcome to another episode of Your Bird Story, and today I will be talking with Julie. I'm going to ask Julie to introduce herself to our listeners. Hi, my name is Julie Pepito. I'm uh, an artist. I live in Brooklyn, and I'm really happy to be on this podcast. Thanks, Julie. I'm going to start by reading a quote from Future View that was published in TulsaPeople.com. It's actually the first paragraph of this article. And the journalist writes, Julie Papito has always stood out a little. The multidisciplinary artist was the only member of her family to be born in Tulsa, coming from an Italian-Irish family of New Yorkers who moved to Oklahoma to get closer to the American dream. Pepito's art similarly is a complex reflection on that dream. So I'm curious if you could sort of walk us through your art journey and your art practice. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my parents were New Yorkers, and they moved there right before I was born, as you said, looking for the American dream. They just wanted to get away from the city, raise kids, be part of the middle class. You know, they realized at an early age that I really loved to draw and make things. And that was really encouraged. And so I took all kinds of art classes. There was no delineation between like in the art world, there's this hierarchy that I learned about later, where if you make things out of certain materials, like craft materials, they were kind of lower and fine art and materials like painting and sculpture was kind of higher. I moved to to New York when I was 18 to really live out my dream of being an artist because it was always encouraged and I always loved to do it. And when I arrived here and went to school at the Cooper Union, I didn't realize that I was jumping into this debate between what is art and growing up, it was very much everything. And here it was fine art and craft and especially at Cooper Union, the fine art was very specifically conceptual or minimal. That's a big part of me, is using these craft materials, not really feeling like I was ever fit neatly into a category. I actually was a little bit of an outsider artist as well, another category. So my journey took me from wanting so bad to get back to New York because my parents were from New York. And I was like, why did you ever leave? We would come to visit and I loved the energy of the city and how everybody was different and just the creativity. It just seemed to be like brimming with excitement and I loved it. So I always wanted to come back. And of course I wanted to be an artist and I, you just absorb being an American that New York city is where you go if you're going to be an artist. Right. So I went to school and then I had this, what ended up being a traumatic experience for me finding out that what I was making, in their opinion, was not art. And then from there, I started making what was more the craft world. I was like, well, if this isn't it, I'm going to do what feels what I've been told, I, what the world I really fit into. 
I went to the Baltimore craft market and I tried to make jewelry and other smaller things on a smaller scale that were, I also felt was in a way, a more democratic kind of art that was accessible to everybody. So I liked that aspect of it, but it was really hard to make a living that way. So I ended up having all kinds of freelance jobs and, you know, trying to make, do this craft business, but I, I ended up being really hard to make this labor intensive jewelry I was making and do all the business part of it and everything. And I kept making art all doing quotes, making sculpture and painting and everything. Also, there's a lot of fiber in what I do using found objects, things I, I would find on the street always have been a big trash picker. I can see the potential in everything I find. And, and I mean, I guess this will get us more to the present that I'm constantly trying to rescue things and give them a new life so that in my own little way, it's a bit of a affirmation that one person can make a difference and trying to keep it out of our natural environment and keep it from killing everything and everyone. Why did you put the words your art in air quotes? I put fine art or art in air quotes because it's all art. And, you know, it was more, I don't like categories in general. And I feel like overarching themes in my art, one of the biggest ones is that everything and everyone is connected. And within that, that there shouldn't be these arbitrary hierarchies that we have you know, mainly patriarchal system has placed on everything. That is actually within my fight for materials. It's like, why would one material be more important than another? Well, the reason why is because over time, in my opinion, like it's a class hierarchy. This is the thing that the workers did. They used their hands to work on fiber. They used their, you know, they were craftsmen and, and women and so there's the, that hierarchy, but also women's work was sewing and doing things like that. So there's that hierarchy as well, just by asserting that there shouldn't be this particular hierarchy with materials. It is one way of getting at breaking down that hierarchy. You mentioned keep working with found materials. And one of the reasons you use them is to keep them out of the natural environment. Why is that important to you? Because we have gotten so accustomed to being a disposable society. And it feels so big and impossible to mitigate. And I have internal dialogues that help me get through everything, through life, through this overwhelming situations, these complicated, overwhelming situations and the, one of the main ones is the Gandhi quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Just keeping in mind that our intention and every little thing we do puts out into the world the possibility of being able to change it. And nothing happens without that possibility. Every time I make something with something, I and every time I pick something up off the street and rescue it, it's very easy to think that it doesn't matter. It's very easy to think that that one thing is not going to solve the problem. 
like I said, everything's connected. In the same way, it's really easy to think that one person doesn't matter or one thought or anything. I still have those thoughts. that They're so ingrained in us that these little things don't matter, that no matter how many times we're reminded, it's hard to remember. So every time I do it, I have the same dialogue in my head, this doesn't matter, and then I resist it. And I'm like, no, this does matter. Every time I do this, it's the possibility that we can change the world and that doing this and also the more people that see other people doing it, you know, of course, like we're all one and together we can change the world. So when you're out and about, for example, in Brooklyn and something catches your eye, what is that moment like? Is it, oh, I can use that piece there's a hole in something I'm working on and that's the perfect piece for it. Or, oh, I just saw something and I know what I'm going to build around this piece. This is the like seed of a new artwork. This morning, I was out for a walk with my neighbor and there are so many smashed cans on the street and I love them. I've come to the point where I see certain pieces of trash and they are like, it's cliche, but they really are treasures to me. I see all the possibility in them. Lately, I've been questioning, though, when I see a can, I'm like, is that special enough? I've seen other people using cans in their artwork recently. You know, is that special enough? And then I have to counter that voice. Mm-hmm. I'm like, who cares? You know, I love it. I'm picking it up. And then I have to counter all my other voices that are like, look at all this trash. Am I going to use all this trash in my work? And this is another theme in my work because of these questions. At what point does something become trash? And what specifically makes it trash and unusable and unvaluable? And why was it so valuable at one point that we spent money on it? this is a constant dialogue in my head. Like at what point is it trash? And again, it's connected to people. Like why are some people seem more valuable than other people? You know, with my, you know, feeling that everything is connected, I'm constantly using it as a metaphor for the greater world. So a lot is going on. All the time. <laughs> as far as the things that I'm really drawn to on the street, I'm really drawn to old plastic toys. Hmm. Cause you will often see this, big pink objects just glowing from down the block. And you know that it's bro- it's got one piece broken off of it. It's a little dirty. Like the, the decals on it have been weathered. The p- plastic maybe is turning a little white, you know, with the weather. And I know nobody's going to do anything with that. And there's this huge piece of plastic that somebody has designed so many resources, natural resources has gone into all the making and everything. So I'll see like somebody's pink Barbie house from down the street. And I think, oh my God, I love that. First of all, I've gotten to the point where I, I love those things. (laughs) Can I take another thing into my small basement studio, which is another thing like, you know, I can't take everything. But I know no one's going to take that. And it's such a big piece of plastic. So many resources have gone into making that. People designed it. It's ruining the environment in wherever it's made. 
that's so much value there. And then it's going to go into landfill. So again, like these things that we know are valuable and they're not getting the correct value assigned to it. We destroy the environment to make this plastic thing so that our kid can be happy for a month. Then it goes out on the street and we have to put it on a barge somewhere and hope that the off-gassing or whatever it is allows our children to still breathe. There's such a cost to it. So I guess I want to bring awareness and I want to do my own little part. And also it satisfies this urge for me to create a new thing, to bring another thing into the world, which I also have conflict about because there was one point when I was in grad school that I couldn't make anything anymore because I was like, anything I make as a cultural producer is somehow going to hurt the world because I'm going to have to use some kind of resource to create it. I mean, even if I'm using found objects, lately I've been trying to use paper mache more because going back to basics of like, what do you give your kids to work with that doesn't hurt the planet or them personally in the moment? And so I'm starting to work with paper clay and paper mache and everything, but there's very few things out there that will not, you know, damage the world if you keep creating things. So it's a hard problem as an environmental artist to grapple with. And I I dealt with a lot on the birdhouse that I made for the Botanic Gardens in Brooklyn. I've seen your work through your social media and the piece uh, that was at BBG last year was the first of your work that I saw in person. And my daughter and I toured the garden and looked at most of the birdhouses and our favorite (laughs) was yours. There was such a presence to it, like a physical presence because of the size. But then on each face, so each cardinal direction, there was something different. This sort of breadth of materials, but then obviously there was a theme that connected them all. It was a wonderful experience being with that piece in that garden. So I would love for you to, yeah, talk about what went into that and how you managed to create something so large and where is it now? (laughs) First of all, that's just amazing. I love hearing that because I really did pour my heart and soul into that piece. I knew where it was going to live and I was so excited about it because I you know, I've taken my son to that garden many times. And when I got the opportunity to make a piece for it, I was just beside myself with excitement. And the first thing we did in order to get ideas for what to do for these site-specific works was we had a tour of the garden with the birder. They really wanted us to, if possible, make a work that related to in some way local birds Hmm. so I started researching local birds and I came up with this idea like I've talked about already that you know we're all one and I always want to talk about connection and, and how to make connections and so you know and things have been so contentious in our country for a while but you know especially in recent well no always but anyways 
I wanted to somehow talk about how we can't solve these big problems, environmental problems, unless we come together and get rid of all these, you know, divisions and unite. So I found that there was five um, birds with American in the title. And some of them, their populations are what they say is in decline. And some of them were not, but they all had American in the title. So I thought it would be an interesting metaphor for our country to bring them all together. Mm. And, and also the, the idea that even though some of them, it doesn't say that they're in decline, that I believe this is on the Audubon Society's website, they, they rate them all. They're all in decline because we are in decline. We are in the sixth mass extinction. We're in the middle of that. And so it was great to be able to come up with that concept. And then at the same time, I wanted to make it entirely out of found things so that I could mitigate the damage as much as possible of the thing I was creating and not hurt the birds. And I started researching what's best habitat for for these birds and things and I realized I was going to have to in order to make the bird houses the right size and right materials I was going to have to purchase new material because there's only certain kinds of wood that are good for them so I resigned myself to that and then I realized that I couldn't actually afford to make the entire thing out of that wood and to make it structurally sound to withstand the elements for six months I had to use some pressure-treated wood, which is really bad, but I did it. I used some pressure-treated wood for the structure, but mainly, other than that, I used all found tile and found objects. I knew I wanted it to be playful, so I worked from a sketch, a collaborative sketch that I'd made with my partner, who is also an artist, and we make these very playful sketches. And I knew I wanted it to be really big because it was right in the middle of the garden and I wanted you to be able to be drawn in from all sides and it to really hold the space. But I only had at that point two or three months to make it and it was still cold outside, but I'm lucky I have some outdoor space to work in because I couldn't fit it in my studio, but it was cold. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done to make this because I couldn't afford or nor did I have time to hire people to work on it with me. So I made the whole thing almost by myself and I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> so, so that was a challenge. I actually ended up hurting my hands during the process and I'm still working on trying to get better from that. I worked day and night. Really, I was at the end there, I was getting up at dawn every day so that I could get the daylight. So I was working outside. I didn't end up actually being able to make it this size and scope that I wanted. I had to cut a huge part of it off. So if you go to the website and you see my original sketch, there's this huge leg that's supposed to come off of it. And I didn't get to build that part, but it ended up, I think, working out. Definitely include a photo. And I have a photo that, or photos that I took of the piece in the garden. It's striking to know that you weren't able to complete it to the sort of 100% of your sketch because it is quite a large piece and I think you only get really get that sense when you're there in the garden you know if you were able to stand next to it yeah in hindsight I'm kicking myself that I didn't get a videographer out there 
and get a really good video of the whole thing because it is very hard to capture in a picture. You talked about being an environmental artist. You've talked about personal conflicts around resource use. You really elegantly talked about this truncated lifespan of plastics in our life. You know, we buy them, we use them for a month, and we discard them and don't necessarily think about their end life. For your pieces, what's their end life? How do you make the a circle as opposed to a line? You really nailed it there. I'm working on it. Actually, right now I'm looking for a new home for the birdhouse. So that takes a lot of research and looking for funding and things that I historically in my own life, it's not been in my wheelhouse. Like it doesn't come naturally to me, but I'm getting better at it. That's what I'm working on right now reaching out to organizations that I think might be able to place it at least temporarily so that it doesn't just sit in pieces next to my studio. You know, I it would be nice to sell it. This is a weird issue, or it has been for me, because our capitalist system is very problematic. It is all of what causes this problem. We make these commodities, and there's this constant need to come out with the new thing and it uses new resources because the companies need to keep going. But the flip side of that, the reality is that we all need to survive somehow. Mm-hmm. And we live in this system. So as an artist, I think I've been in denial that I need to be part of this system. You know, there are other options. I could just make my art and teach. I've, I'm a teacher as well, an art teacher. I've been able to recently figure out how to make a living through being able to share what I know, which is a wonderful way to make a living. But there's also resources that get used in that, in teaching. It's a problem <laughs> that I'm working on. But I've come to the realization that I really want to sell my work and I'm going to be more purposeful about doing that so that it can live in someone else's place, whether it's an institution or someone's home. It doesn't do me any good just sitting around. I do give it as gifts and donate it sometimes. But still, someday, maybe it will become someone's trash. I don't know. Like This is the history of the world, right? There's all of us artists out there, cultural producers making things, and not all of it is going to go into the Met, right? So it's something to work on. The thing that I really have to recognize in myself and also counter in myself and other people is that there's this tendency to feel like, oh, the problem is too big, forget it. Mm. Why even try? It's too big. And that's not who I am. That's not who we are. We don't just give up. Like, we can figure this out. I'm also an activist. I've done tons of art for activism. And I've shifted a little recently to, I've made a lot of protest art in the street. And I will still do that. I'm really trying to put more positive action into the world, like put, give solutions and show that there's possibility, partly because of my son. My son is feeling, he's a teenager now. I hope it's okay with him if I talk about this. But he's a teenager now, and he's he's been going through feeling like there's no hope for the future. 
And that's the saddest thing. He wants to see positive things. And I feel like it's my responsibility, our responsibility. Another thing that helps me get through life is Arundhati Roy's words, another world is possible. And I always change it to a better world is possible. We have to solve, at least work on solving these problems and believe we can do it. We owe it to them. It seems to me that one of the elements of the capitalist system is to overwhelm you, to make it seem impossible to counter it, to make it seem like the natural way of things. And just from our conversation here, I'm struck by your thoughtfulness about these issues and your willingness to do as much as you can and to bring others along with you in that work. So I suppose it's hopeful, right? Because we do need to feel that we as individuals and communities and the work that we do is meaningful. That's what keeps us doing the hard stuff. There's meaning to it, personal meaning, social meaning, and just historically doing the hard work is the stuff that makes change. So it is incredibly hard. (laughs) It is nice to have positive feedback. And one of the ways to get that is through art. Everything that you make or a new thing you bring into the world is an act of hope, right? Yeah. This podcast. (laughs) Thanks. I wanted to close by asking you, the local birds that you chose with American in the name, were you drawn to a particular species? Did one of those birds really speak to you? So the biggest bird on the birdhouse is the American robin. And I guess I'm mostly drawn to that bird. I had made a piece many years ago based on an illustration from an old nursery rhyme that had this picture of an American robin in it. And I've used that image throughout the years. And actually, I have this story that happened. I didn't finish the birdhouse at my studio. I had to get it into the space before I was actually finished with it. And I was told I would be able to work on it there a little bit to put finishing touches on it. I made it in 13 pieces so that it could be transported. That was part of the really difficult thing about it was that it would have to be transported. And I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I had to think about that from the beginning, which is something I've never had to do before. And I had to make all those mosaics removable which I don't know if anyone's ever had to do before. I had to kind of invent a method of making a removable mosaic that could be reinstalled. It was all put back together in the place, but I was never able to see it, a 360-degree view around it, because it was always up against a wall and I couldn't move it. It was too big and heavy. So once it was in place, I brought all my materials there and I was exhausted. I hadn't slept for maybe a couple of weeks at that point. And the park had closed. I was told I needed to leave. I still wasn't done. I decided at the last minute to paint the boots yellow. They were white. And I'm doing it and everything. And I'm like delirious. And I look up and there's an American robin sitting at the very top on the, the little perch 
which is an upside down table. It's like this bent steel corner at the top. It already had like this little Martian at the top that I toy that I'd put on it. And I had thought about putting an American Robin sculpture about that size at the top right next to the Martian, but I never did it. But when I looked up, I was like, did I do that? I can't remember. <laughs> did I put that there? But it was real, of course. I just felt like it was a message. It was like, you're done. Just we're going to complete the birds are will complete this for you. And the fact that it was an American Robin really, I felt like made sense. It's a wonderful story and also a great event or moment to bring that peace to life in the garden. That symbolic connection that was made between your work and the birds that inhabit the garden really captured in that moment, that interaction with your sculpture. Well, Julie, thank you so much for speaking with me about your art and the making of your piece that was exhibited at BBG last year. Thank you so much, Georgia. This was great. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Your Bird Story. Like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you back here next month.